All righty, guys, if we'll make our way back to our seats, we will continue to worship God, responding to his words now in view of his word in the book of Nehemiah. So this, this morning we'll finish up our series in the book of Nehemiah, and in some senses you might think as we come to this chapter, man, it would have just been great to end it at the end of chapter 12. And we're going to touch on chapter 12 a little bit, but it's, it's like they were celebrating. All these wonderful things have happened. The walls have been rebuilt. The, the city is being repopulated. The worship of God through the temple and in the stuff of everyday life has taken place. But as we're going to see today is uh, that's not always the reality of how things continue and how things go. I just want to kind of tip you off to where we're going next in terms of where we'll be focusing in God's Word is everyone here, if you don't know it, uh, should know it, is that we are a church that believes that worship is so much more than what happens on a Sunday morning. Although we deeply value this time and we believe that God has called us to have as a part of our discipleship, coming together as a whole church, singing, reading, praying, hearing God's word, participating in the Lord's table, is that we believe that we are sent to be followers of Jesus in the stuff of everyday life. But that's what discipleship, discipleship isn't a class, discipleship isn't a curriculum, it's not a program, it's not about an engagement with a pastor or a preacher, it's about a life of abiding in Jesus and following him. And if we want to be true to that mission, then that means that we have got to be a people who know how to harness one particular area of our life under the lordship of Jesus. There's many, but here's a big one, and that's our emotional life. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are all emotional beings. And those of you who feel like you're less emotional than other people, you're not. You just have different ways of being aware of that and different ways of accessing that and different ways of acknowledging it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a season to let God's Word guide us and what it looks like for us to be a people who become better aware of our emotional life so that we cannot be ruled by it but let Jesus rule it. We're going to look into the book of the Psalms. We're going to look into the Godhead, into the relation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as to what it means to be a people who are going out into the stuff of everyday life and are letting Jesus reign in our hearts and experiences of the world. But this morning we're going to finish up in Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to start in chapter 12 at verse 44. We left off. The font's smaller. It may be hard to read, so if you have a Bible or you want to get your phone out and pull up a, a Bible app, uh, again, we're going to read quite a bit here, and then we'll jump in, but we want, we want to let God's Word do its work in your life. And so Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the firstfruits, and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests, for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, 
For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet only God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. We're going to talk about this section first when we get into the sermon in a minute. But just imagine right now, this is kind of a vision of after the celebration of, of faithfulness, of, of life being lived as God had laid it out. But then we come to verse 4. Now before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. If you've been, been around, that's not the first time you've heard this name. Enemy of God's people, enemy of Nehemiah and the work of restoration. But Elisha, the priest, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber in the temple where this is happening, where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah had left for a while. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So that's sort of the first problem Nehemiah's having to readdress after all they've been through. Here's the next one, verse 10. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought out the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Now sort of an aside. Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Now sort of the third area of compromise Nehemiah finds upon his return. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrrhenians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What's this evil thing you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. We'll get to this, but we see that they're already, they went through this great time of rebuilding and renewal, and it's just falling back into the old ways that led to all the old consequences. Verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. 
And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And here's some creative sinning, creative rebellion. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. We'll just do it right outside the wall. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Some of you uh, don't need to take this super literally. We'll get to this later. (laughs) We're going to take it literally. We're going to see, thank goodness we've got uh, Nehemiah and also a better Nehemiah. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And again, Nehemiah appeals to the Lord, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Next compromise he finds. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now here's another, here's another uh, little glimpse into Nehemiah's character and personality. Context and he says, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. (laughs) And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was the son-in-law of Sanballat, again, if you remember, one of the big enemies of God's people in Nehemiah, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember then, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed from, cleansed from them from everything foreign, and I established duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And Nehemiah once again appeals to God, Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray along with Jesus to you now, God, sanctify your people in truth. Your word is true. Father, as we come to passages like this as New Covenant Christians, help us to remember, Lord, and to believe in faith that all Scripture is inspired by you and is profitable for us. That all Scriptures point us to Jesus. And that your word gives us the wisdom that we need to rebuild our lives, to see renewal in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our world. May we submit ourselves now to you, Holy Spirit. May what is true and what is spoken from my lips give us hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a church that prioritizes a life lived like we find around Matthew's table in Matthew chapter 9, where you see Jesus and you see his disciples, and then you see a group of people that the world might want to call the outcasts, the people who have either written the church off or the church has written off, we come in contact with 
many people, and we are those people who have been broken, burnt out, and bored. And as we do this at times, we, we do come in contact and engage our lives and become great friends with those who may have what we consider more traditional or classic addiction problems. And one, of, one dear friend that we had early on in the life of our church that became just a part of the family in so many ways, he began to be loved, he began to experience a, a family situation and support that he at least said to us that he had not experienced before. He began to get committed to bringing change about in his life, and he found this opportunity to go and to this extended rehab program. And I remember him telling me, I really, th I, I really think this is what's going to change my life. And he said, I, I need you to drive me there. I need you to take me there. And I remember this was a day I was supposed to be helping Cassie clean up leaves in the yard, and uh, that didn't end well on our part. But anyway, like a, a good man, I'm always willing to go help somebody else, even if I'm not willing to work at home. And so I said, load up in the truck, we're going, I'm going to take you there. And so we get in the truck and we go, but on the way I tell him, I'm like, hey, I'm making a sacrifice for my family to do this for you today. I believe in you, I believe in the work God's doing in your life. And he's like, yes, I do too. And he said, and I told him, so when we go, I'm not coming back to get you. Till you've really tried this. Till you've really lived in the commitment. And he's like, okay. I, that's great. That's what I'm going to do. Because I've said, I'm not making you go. You've the one that, you said you wanted to go, and you want me to take you. Well, I take him. I drop him off. He is excited. He's pumped up. He's greeted by all these other guys who, who seemingly have been through what he's been through and have come out on the other side. And I promise you, I did not get two hours down the road before I got a phone call. He was gone. And I remember him telling me, they followed me to the bathroom. And I said, well, friend, we talked about this. this is a, you're going into this space to where your life's going to have to be radically changed. And that's going to mean little bitty things more than big things. It's one thing to have the big idea, but yes, you're, you're going to have to spend a season where you're not trusted alone in a bathroom with your backpack. And he couldn't grasp this and ultimately went back into his life of exile. And that's not an exaggeration to call it a life of exile because it's a life of living alone. Living with phony friendships where people just use each other to get where they want, where there may be some degree of care, but where you may not know if whoever that friend is will even be alive tomorrow. I say that not to shame my friend and other friends that I have like that. The reason I say that is because we are all him. However nice your home, however nice your clothes, however uh, passionate sometimes that your zeal can be, if not all the time, many times we are a people who are more about a big celebration, a big event, a big commitment than we are about the daily passionate pursuit and perseverance of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's the, the classic youth group church camp experience that fades away once school starts back. It's the classic person who has this experience and maybe they're caught in their sin or they're convicted of their sin in a moment and they feel the consequences of their sin 
And so they're ready to make a big decision and a big recommitment because, but really it's just because they feel the consequences of their sin. But when the feeling of the consequences go away and now they have to feel the cost of commitment, they fade. It's all of us hearing a motivated sermon, a motivating speech, or being a part maybe of some type of motivating movement. But when the news cycle changed, when the papers begin to give preference to other issues, our zeal wanes. Sometimes our faithful endurance lasts only about as long as our felt experience. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes our faithful endurance only lasts about as long as our felt experience. So we're here for a day of revival or renewal. But are we here for the day of resilient faithfulness? Many people, just like the people of Israel, are totally here for Nehemiah 1, 12 through 43. You've got a dynamic visionary leader like Nehemiah who shows up on the scene. He, he reminds people of who they are and what they're called to be. They work together to rebuild the walls. They have this conflict going on again with Samballat, Tobiah, and, and Gershon. And there's like this, this tension and this passion. It's like, yes, we've got a fight to fight. And there's visible real enemies that we're fighting. Everybody gets excited. Everybody's about on this. Remember, they're, on the, they're building the wall. They've got swords in one hand and shovels in the other. It's exciting. It's passionate. There's a degree of, of risk and scariness to it, but there's also this tension and thrill that makes it fun. Then you've got Ezra getting up on this huge platform they've built, and you've got crowds, thousands of people. He's reading the law to them for the first time. People, if you remember, they're lifting their hands. They're shouting amen. It's a beautiful time. Then they repopulate the city of God. And then remember, they sign these big covenant declarations. This is their statements on the, the issues of the day. Then there's these dedications. There's a celebration we saw last week where they could hear it from other cities. We need to be all about those things. Those are wonderful, great times, experiences, and seasons. But the question before us in view of Nehemiah 13 is, are we here for the day of small things? For living out what all those big things were really all about in the first place. Are we just here for what's big in the news cycle, but are we here to do the work? Are we just here for the event of revival, or are we here for the daily renewal? Are we here for the crowds, or will we be there when we're all alone? Not to belabor this, but it's just to set this context, so we'll move a little more quickly through the text today, is Adam and Eve were there for the walks with God in the cool of day. But what about having to pass that tree every single day with an enemy whispering in your ear? Israel was up for the exodus. But what about the wilderness? If we were only to hear this through the lens of our own experience, I'm sure many of us could say, yeah, that's me. I, it's me. I could show you in my journal more failed commitments than I could show you Stephen's. 
And here's the funny thing. I could show you more journals that I bought that I never even used. <laughs> to even prove the point even more. Yes, I'm going to get a journal. I'm going to start doing this. You know, like maybe a few days of writing in the journal. But the good news for us today that can lead us to look at this correctly is that God is up for it all. He's not just the God of the celebration and the big season and the big movement. He's, he's the God who's with us in the, in the hidden places, in the daily grind. He's the God who's not just about the big works. He's the God who is committed to put in the work for you. He's faithful. And although sometimes our faithfulness to God is only as strong as our feelings in the moment, it's so great to know that God's presence with us isn't based on some type of passing feelings in Him, but on His covenantal love for us. He's faithful to you when nobody else is, when nobody else is watching, and when nobody else might care. And he may not give you what you want, but he will never forget you. And even in the mystery of evil and suffering, he never will cease to work to cause all things together for your good to make you more like Jesus. His commitment to you, to me, to us endures beyond our experience. So if we want to enjoy a life of restoration of rebuilding that's not just a seasonal flash in the pan, but a life of transformation and joy, then we must embrace a life of resilient faithfulness. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, has written a book, talks about this, and it's taught, the way he says it's just way better, is we need to embrace a long obedience in the same direction. So, we read a lot of the scriptures. We've set the stage here. Now we're just going to hit quickly on three things I think this text shows us how we can do that to embrace a life of resilient faithfulness when nobody's looking, when the celebration is over. The first one is we must envision what a life of resilient faithfulness looks like. So in verses uh, 44 through 47 and verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, we see the dedication celebration ends with this recollection, this sort of vision of what the daily grind faithfulness of the people of God looked like. In verses 43 through 47, we see that the temple worship is taking place. They're finding great joy in it. The temple servants are not only given something to do, but they're performing the service faithfully, it says. And it seems that they've put themselves, verse 45, into this rich history of David and Solomon. So it's not just that they're doing the work, it's they're doing worship. And they're doing it in light of the story of God. It's captivating. It's powerful. It's like if you were a basketball player and you got to play on the Lakers or the Celtics. It's not just that you play, it's you're, you're a part of this legacy, this tradition. And being a part of the kingdom of God is the greatest lineage, the greatest heritage, the greatest history. So verse 46, they sing and praise God as a part of that bigger story. Verse 47, they give of themselves also daily. So we notice here this speak of the daily portions. It's, it's not just that they had an event. Now, when things are operating how they're supposed to, worship is not just a big event. It's now a daily part of life. It's not just a daily part of life. It is life. Then in verses 1 through 3 of 13, we see that they hear 
They continue to read the word of the Lord and they obey it, even when it's costly. So there's this issue of separating from the nations, of not intermarriage. We don't have a lot of time to talk on that today. We've talked about it before. The, the Bible is not speaking saying that it's wrong to intermarry across races or ethnicities, whichever word you prefer. That's a lie of the devil that's been propagated in much of, sadly, us, particularly our southern culture. What it is saying is that we are not to marry or blend our lives together in these covenantal ways with those who are not trusting and following in the God of Israel. It's talking about this relationship taking place not with someone who has a different skin color than me or ethnicity, but with another God. It's talking about idolatry. It's talking about saying, yeah, my God's cool if your idol moves in. And the people hear this, and even though it's costly, they obey it. This was largely what was a part of the exile that they were brought into, into the great evils and suffering that they faced as they disobeyed God and they treated him as just like another God on the shelf. And what we see in this first section today is it's just this vision of what resilient faithfulness looks like. For ongoing transformation to happen in our lives beyond the event, beyond the season, beyond the thrill, beyond the tension. We've got to have this ongoing work of imagination happening in our lives. I'm not talking about imagination in terms of like, I've, I'm imagining I see a unicorn over there on the wall dancing on a rainbow. I'm talking about imagination that is bringing us actually in touch with reality. I'm talking about envisioning. I'm talking about seeing what is real in a world full of lies. Because if our imaginations aren't touched at the level of our heart and soul and mind and body, then we won't really have the vision for what a resilient faithfulness looks like in our lives. It'll be stuck in our head. It'll be like, I know I should do this, but here's where my heart is. It's imagining this and dreaming of this. And guess what wins? in the war between mental information and hard imagination. Hard imagination. This is why the scriptures are, are replete with telling us God wants us to love Him from our hearts. The causal core of who we are captured by the vision of His truth. You can illustrate this in a couple ways with two guys that share at least two of the same names. Martin Luther King and Martin Luther. Martin Luther King, if we know anything about him, he had a dream. A dream that not only inspired others, but if you look at the totality of his life and other speeches that are probably more powerful and other sacrifices that are more maybe even extreme than many of us would realize, is it was that dream that inspired him, that imagination when nobody else was around. When he was in prison, when he was told by pastors to be more patient and just to calm down. For many, just one, a one-off speech that maybe you can appreciate from a distance, but it was to him an imagination that filled a resilient faithfulness that would cost him his life. Martin Luther, the monk that helped along with others, spur what we know as the Reformation. 
he lived his life in this religious system that told him God's love and approval, welcome and acceptance of him was only as good as his performance of obedience. If you want to go and study his life, you can see that he had some wild imaginations going on about the demonic works pressing in on him and the accusations. This is why he wrote that great hymn, really a spiritual warfare, called A Mighty Fortress. But what changed was when he was reading in the book of Romans, and not just his head, but his heart was captured with the vision and the perfect picture of a God who receives us based on a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. And now he began to imagine a life for himself where he lived in freedom. And then he began to imagine a life for the whole church. What if the whole church was set free from this? And again, we may remember his statement at the Diet of Worms. Here I stand, I can do no other. But he was then exiled for this and had to live many days in the solitary of a daily grind just writing pamphlets and works that would continue this work of reformation at the church question before us today is can we envision what our life of resilient faithfulness looks like? There may be some of you in here who have an, an inactive or underused imagination. Or maybe it's connected to the wrong things. And God wants you to start to dream. What would it look like for me to live my life wholly given over to Him? What would that look like? You might like literally today want to get out some paper or get out that journal like me you hadn't took out of the wrapper yet and just write out, man, what would it look like? What would it look like for me to experience freedom in this area of my life? What would it look like for me to be faithful to this cause that God has put on my heart even maybe when nobody else is anymore? What would the hard work look like? Not just the moment, not just the event, but what, what's, what's my life going to look like being given over this? What is this going to cost me? Jesus tells us to count the cost. What's his faithfulness going to look like as I do this? This isn't legalism. It's the opposite. It's imagining what a life of committed love would look like. So I've said before, as beautiful as a honeymoon is for a married couple... What's even more beautiful for me and part of my pastoral ministry was going into the nursing home here in Bradley County and seeing a wife feeding her husband who has Alzheimer's and doesn't even know who she is anymore. That's love. What's that going to look like in my life? We give ourselves to it. It's not going to be easy. And though, so for some of us who might think, well, that's just pie-in-the-sky imagination, you may as well be talking about uh, unicorns dancing on rainbows. We get to, the, to the, the bulk of chapter 13, and that is not only do we need to envision what a life of resilient faithfulness looks like, is we need to expect that there are going to be temptations to compromise on every corner. The enemy is not going to say, wow, look at that big celebration they have. Look at that big commitment they made. Look at that big movement they got started. I'm just going to give up now. 
No, he is going to ramp it up. Not just the, the enemy of the Satan, but, but our flesh, that old, old sinful nature, the world around us. They're going to come harder at you. And we see them coming harder at the people of God here. In some, these are not new ways. These are words we've seen in the book of Nehemiah. But they're going to come back. And some of you think, oh, well, something must be wrong with me if that old temptation comes back. No, we, we've got to have this framework where that's what we expect. We're at war. The first compromise in verses 4 through 9 is this compromise of family relations and social connections over God. Tobiah, remember, is this, this enemy. He's, kind of, he's, he's, he's got this Jewish name, but he's, he's got one foot in the people of God, and he's always got one foot in the world so that he can have it both ways. He hates Nehemiah, but he's, he's like a thorn in Nehemiah's side. And now, because he's related to Elisha, the high priest, he somehow weaseled himself in the way to basically having a part of the temple of God being made into his apartment. And the only, the only connection we can see here with how this worked out is because they're related. And Tobiah's just a classic weasel. And Elisha evidently had a, a, a very weak spine. But there was this compromise. Well, we're family. Well, we're friends. And so God, I know you're great and all, but you know, I can see this person. They're right here. So I guess I just need to give in to them. Then in verses 10 through 13, there's the compromise of material investment over blessing. So we see in verses uh, 10 through 13 that, again, we just read full service, temple, ministry, mission going on, and now all of a sudden, People kind of like, ah, we really don't want to give to that. We've got other things that we need to take care of in our life. And so now the priests and Levites can't even afford to stay there. And so they've left the temple. So the temple's like being abandoned. you got folks living in it, Tobiah. Now all the priests and Levites are having to go out and work the fields so that they can take care of themselves. Because people, you know, it gets old giving to support stuff. Like, blah, I'll give to the big the big celebration, but that, that kind of continued commitment, that sounds boring. Verses 15 through 22, we have the compromise of production over the Sabbath of God. So again, this was a big part of the covenantal commitment they made, but it's really hard to look around at the world making all this money by not taking a day to rest. What they've forgotten is it really wasn't about the money. It was saying, we serve a God who works for us. We serve a God who finishes his work. We serve a God who provides. But they're like, well, I guess we just really trust in our own power than in a God who provides. Then verses 23 through 31 to the end, the compromise back again, even after this commitment of intermarriage and really touches on sexual immorality. And so it's pointed out, hey, Solomon, remember that guy, the wisest guy in the history of the world? Even he was taken down by this. And you guys think that you can flirt and play around with this and do better? I say this often, but uh, Mike Tyson, I just love it. He's getting back in the news now. He said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. All of us in here, we got our commitment plans, our renewal plans, our we're going to change the world plans. Well, get ready. If your plan is in line with God, you're going to get punched in the face. That's a part of the territory of following Jesus. 
is sometimes we think, oh, this is so hard and I'm getting so much resistance, I must not be in the will of God. Maybe, but most often, if you're getting so much resistance and it's so hard, you might, might actually be the evidence you're in the will of God. The, the saying goes, you know when you're flying over the right target because you're getting shot at. And when you're getting to where the real battle is taking place, you just need to expect the fire's going to get harder, the temptations are going to get stronger, and the, the attack on you will get even more diabolical. Pastor Tony Evans gives this kind of illustration. He says, imagine watching a football game and one team says, we would, all, we would really like to get a first down and get a touchdown, but that other team just keeps getting in our way. And so we're going to quit. Now what would we say? We would say, do you know anything about football? That's the whole point. You can't say, well, we have these big goals to get first downs, touchdowns, but they just, it's just hard. That, that's what the Spirit wants to say to us. It's what Jesus says to us through His Word. It's like He's calling you to make this progress in your life. Sometimes just a few yards, sometimes a first down, sometimes a touchdown, but so often we like go to do it and there's all this opposition and we're like, well, I guess I'm just going to quit. And just like we would say to that football team, well, you, do you understand the game? So we need to hear, do we understand? That a life of renewal, a life of rebuilding, and a life of restoration is not going to be easy. And if you don't expect the opposition and you don't expect the fight, then you're just going to be that much more vulnerable to this type of decline that we see here in Nehemiah, where you're just like, Man, that was too hard. I quit. So lastly, what do we need? We need a leadership, a zealous, passionate leadership that protects us from enemies, not just on the outside, because in this chapter, it's not enemies on the outside. It's from the inside, from in ourselves, and empowers us for the good life God has called us to live. And this is where we want to touch on our... Uh, be on these areas in the life of Nehemiah that maybe caused some of you to put some question marks over Nehemiah's character. Now, first of all, just some asides, is Nehemiah here is not just functioning as an individual person. Nehemiah is functioning as the, the government. He's the, the head, the governmental leader. So we're not going to excuse, you know, jerking folks' hairs out and cursing them and beating them. But, but we do need to set it in that context. It's like he, he is the authority. And we also need to see, though, that Nehemiah, in his reaction, is not coming from, not doing this because it's in the interest of his power or maintaining his ability to rule as a tyrant over people. If we remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king in Persia. He don't even got to be here. He can be up there living it up in Persia. He's chose to sacrifice his comfort to come and see this people be restored and renewed. And so his zeal, we see here the good, the bad, and the ugly. We see that he, in verse 7, he calls evil, evil. He has clarity for the fog. And this is the type of leadership that we need when we get into the fog of decline, the fog of sin, the fog of cultural and systematic issues that are just the water that we drink, that we can't even, is, is we need someone who can speak with clarity 
and just call evil, evil. Sometimes we need a nuanced third way. And if you know me, I love nuance. Sometimes you just need somebody to say, that's evil. That's evil. It just got to stop. You know, there's no need here to just sit around and sip coffee and talk any longer. Right? It's evil. And then he gets very angry. He throws Tobiah out. You just see him. He's throwing his furniture out of the temple. He's like, this is, this is desecrating the holiness of God. Then he gives the orders for the temple to be set to rights. He confronts officials on abandoning their posts. He appoints leaders in their place who are reliable, who are resilient. He warns the people of unfaithfulness to God. He warns the leaders who aren't going to say anything about it, about unfaithfulness. He commands and installs practical measures. Again, verse 21, he warns he's going to lay hands on people if they don't stop. He commands Levites for purity. He confronts the immorality. He calls them to reaffirm their oath. He reminds them of the history of where they trusted their self over God and it led them into destruction. He cleanses what is defiled in the temple. Again, of, of, it says of anything foreign. This is not xenophobia. So, so if we have problems in our society now, which are real, is racism, but another one we don't talk about as much, but we need to talk to about as much in our city especially, is xenophobia. That is, if you're not from here, you don't really matter. Or your voice isn't as important. No, again, what Nehemiah is saying, I just want to put the voices away that are against God. Those should not be speaking from the temple. So he's going to cleanse the temple of idolaters speaking from the temple. And then he pleads for the grace of God. This is just repeated, remember me, God. Remember me, God. Show me favor. He's saying, God, give me grace. Nehemiah is a great leader, but Nehemiah is an imperfect sinner like all of us. And so we need Nehemiah, but ultimately what we need is who we need, and it's Jesus. Nehemiah was used by God. He could cleanse the outward temple, but he couldn't change people's hearts. And so all of us in our zeal are both imperfect and in need. If we go out today and we try to apply this in our own flesh and in our own strength, I guarantee you, you may not literally go pull somebody's hair out, but you're probably going to lose it on somebody. And that's sin. We're called to be angry and not sin. There's some of us in these ditches of zeal and apathy. Some of us who don't care enough. Some of us who get crazy in our concern. But the good news is, is that we have a better and truer Nehemiah than Jesus. Jesus called evil, evil, and he didn't care who it was. He looked into the face of a religious establishment, and he said, evil. He looked into the face of a Roman empire, and he said, evil. And they killed him for it, but he called it what it was. Nehemiah is not the only person who goes into a temple and starts throwing stuff out either. Jesus saw that the temple, which, again, to bring this so we see that I'm not just trying to play nice guy with what's happening here. Jesus goes into the temple and he sees that they've, they've obstructed the worship from who? From the nations. 
Jesus says, this is my Father's house. It's to be a house of prayer where all nations come together and experience the redeeming and reconciling and restorative work of God. And you've made it into your little religious market so that you can control how the animals for the sacrifice are sold and who makes money. And you've just pushed the people out who don't look like you. And he got angry, righteously angry, and threw it out. He did it because he loved us. It wasn't the zeal of a power-hungry tyrant wanting his way. It was the zeal of love. Love for you and me. That's how much he loves us. He gets angry when he sees the enemy taking advantage of us. He loves us enough to set the temple to rights, not just in throwing out those who would distort it, but by going to the cross. As Jesus hang on the cross in our place for all our apathy, our lack of commitments, and all our sinful zeal, it says the, temp- the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Jesus came to restore all that we break by giving us His life so that we might be brought into the very presence and peace of God. And from that gospel security of grace, He calls us now to go and be zealous for His glory and for His good in this world. Jesus says, cut off that hand. Jesus says the road is narrow. Jesus says get that stuff out of the temple. You know where the temple is now? You are that temple. You're a temple of God. We're the temple of God. You know, Jesus is working towards the great day when all the earth will be the temple of God because He Himself is the temple of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. The only way we will enjoy this life of restoration is we must embrace the life of resilient hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've met us here through your word, your spirit, and your table. As we come now to the table, O God, might you help us to be renewed again in your faithfulness for us so that we might be renewed again in our faithfulness for you. In Jesus' name.